Uh, John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. If, if you don't have a Bible, you don't have one with you, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. And there's a table of contents at the front of that if you're unfamiliar with how to use that. And that will let you know where 1 John is. But we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. Let me, let me read it together in its entirety, and then we'll walk through. John writes and says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Uh, Over the course of my life, really growing up, like many of us, that my testimony really kind of picks up as a child. And so I I came to faith at a young age. and, And so if you go to my parents' house, you can find this little baptismal certificate wedged between books and photos and, and all these wonderful uh, assorted things. And, 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 and to a certain degree, that's helpful. And to a certain degree, that's really interesting. But can I be honest that over the course of my life, I found myself attempting in some ways to psychoanalyze this kid. I'm going along and things are going well and, and I have some type of crisis of faith. I, I begin to, to doubt the veracity, the truthfulness, the sincerity of a seven-year-old's claim. And so I, I, I can remember thinking over and over and over again, did he really know? Did he really understand? Because, man, i got to be honest. When I think back to my baptism, there are, are two things that are paramount, two things that stick out of my heart more than anything else. One is when we had the pastor over to our house, my mom let me carry uh, a tray of stuff from the kitchen to the uh, living room where he was, and I tripped and fell and, and just junk went everywhere. That, that sticks out. That one sticks out. I remember that. The second thing I remember getting in the water, and, and it was cold, and I remember Dr. John Haas beside me, and, you know, buried in the bubble, 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 coming back up, and, and you know, raised to walk in newness of life, and, and then me looking at him saying, there's a blue pin down there. There's a blue, there's a blue pin down there. Don't forget to get the blue pin. Neither one of those things in the midst of crisis were all that helpful, right? And so I'm thinking through and thinking, am I really saved? I don't know, but there's a blue pin down there. Am I really saved? I don't know. I shouldn't carry a tray. Neither one of these things have been all that helpful for me as far as giving me any type of assurance over the course of my life. What we see in John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24, are among the many two specific concrete ways that we can have assurance in our life. Now, I want you to hear something before we get into this. Assurance in the Christian's life primarily comes from the finished work of Jesus. If you have believed in the finished work of Jesus, that he came, that he lived a perfectly sinless life, that he died in your stead, receiving upon himself the penalty, the punishment for sin, that he died, entered into the grave, and that he rose three days later, if this is the the testimony of your heart, then you can have assurance. And this is the primary area that the Christian gains assurance. But John gives us two other ways, at least, that we can have assurance. 
Notice in verse 19, he says, By this we shall know two things. One, that we are of the truth, and a second, that we can reassure our heart before him. So the question logically becomes, what in the world is this? If we want to know that we're of the truth, if we want our hearts reassured, then we find ourselves clamoring for the answer of what in the world this is. Well, if you look immediately prior to this, look back in verse 18 of chapter 3, we begin to find the answer. John wrote, he says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You see, over the course of our lives, the way John figures it, we can look back and we can ask ourselves the question, am I engaged primarily in love in terms of talking about it, describing it, or am I characterized, my life is it characterized by love as in deed and in truth? Now, this is the way that John sets this up, and it's really interesting to think about. If you look at verse 19, he's talking about some future event. So maybe for many of us, like we look at our lives right now and say, man, I am totally fine. Like I've got nothing major going on. The wife loves me. I love the wife. Job's great. Kids are great. I mean, I mean, just things are wonderful and amazing in my life. And the way John figures this, he says, look, at some point in the future, life is going to crap out on you. At some point in the future, life is going to mess out. It's going to be awful. And at that moment in the future, this is what you do. At that moment in the future, when you look around and you say, my life shouldn't be this way. I shouldn't be thinking these things. I shouldn't be struggling in these ways. Does God even love me? Am I even saved? In that moment, this is what you do. You look back. And you look at the course of your life. You look at the trajectory that it's been on. And you ask yourself this question. Has the overflow of my heart and the Spirit's work in me produced love in deed and in truth? And this, for us, becomes one of the primary areas where we're able to self-metric and self-diagnose kind of our hearts in this. So this is amazing for us. Why? Because if we find ourselves in the midst of struggle, well, it's difficult to see through that, isn't it? It's this fog over our eyes. It's this difficulty of our hearts. We say, I shouldn't be thinking this thing. I shouldn't be doing this thing. Everybody around me thinks ill of me. Everybody around me says, oh, she's just such a hapless idiot. Oh, he's just such a fool. Their life is this merry-go-round of unfaithfulness and, 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 and waywardness. But over the course of our lives, We find that the course of our lives, the outward leaning of our heart and the trajectory of which we are headed has always been for his good and for his glory. This is why John Ryson says at some point in the future, you're going to need to be able to look back at your life. And when you look at your life, what you're looking for is spirit-fueled energy outworking and playing itself out in deed and in truth. And seeing this, knowing this, we will know that we are of the truth. In essence, John's saying, when you look back and you see the course of your life moving in this direction, you know that you are saved. You know that you are united with God. You know that God is united with you. And look what he says here, leaning into what he's going to say. He says, we reassure our heart before him. At this future moment, when we begin to look back at the course of our lives and ask ourselves the question, is this been, has this been the trajectory of my life? Has this been my heart, Christ? We're not looking primarily at the valleys. We're looking at the overall trajectory of our lives. And as we do this, those of us who the Spirit is alive and breathing and willing and moving in us, what we will see is that yes, indeed, 
I mean, there have been pits, there have been valleys, there have been moments where we've been backslidden. But the overall mark of our lives is moving on. The overall mark of our lives is that motivated by his love that we have received, we have been living out in fruitfulness. This is very much what Jesus is talking about in Luke 6, when he says a good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. The fruit of our lives, when you look at the the full swath of it, is to produce good fruit in line with being equipped, empowered, and infused with the power of the Spirit. Look what he goes on to say. He finds many of us kind of in these moments of doubt. So he says, for whenever our heart condemns us, if we're honest, many of us, most of us, there are moments in our lives where your heart's just crying out, I'm not real. I'm, I'm, I'm an illegitimate child of God. Man, I go to church on Sundays, I go to church on Wednesdays. If you look at my, my offering record, it's like 12% off gross. Right? So you're very impressed by that. And so if we, if we find ourselves in the midst of this, most of us will find that there are moments in our lives that, man, our hearts are condemning us. The testimony of our heart is, is saying, you're not worth it. The testimony of our hearts are saying, you're unredeemed. The testimony of our hearts are saying, man, if people knew who you were, if people knew what you did, they wouldn't even let you in the doors of the church. So John writes us and says, for whenever our hearts condemn us, and we know this morning that there are a couple of illegitimate reasons our hearts stand before, condemned before God, and there are a couple of legitimate reasons our hearts might stand condemned before God. Well, let's look at the idea or explore the idea of, of illegitimate reasons we allow ourselves to feel condemned. Man, I think the first one for many of us is just the opinions of other people, Right? We come into church on a Sunday morning. I'm in church on a Wednesday night. We drive by the church, and in our minds, there's this temptation to go to this place where we're so consumed, so filled with what other people think of me, what other people think about the way I spend my money, what other people think about the way I spend my time, what other people think about the size of my home, what other people think about my charitable giving, what other people think about my attitude, my responses, my posts on social media. And so some of these things, we are in this moment and we are kind of inwardly thinking and inwardly thinking about what they think about us and our heart begins to beat and say, you're wrong. They're absolutely right. They have this true understanding of who you are. And in that moment, our conviction, our heart's condemnation stems not from the Holy Spirit, but it stems from what we presume others think about us. That's illegitimate. Can I tell you this morning that if what you're primary basis for making decisions, your primary basis for who you are before God stems from what other people think about you. You've got it all wrong. A Christian's identity stems from, flows from, primarily from what our great God thinks about us. We can have support in our community, but we do not receive the outward opinions of others and allow them to become the overflow of who we are, of what our identity is. I tell you that some of us don't need outsiders' opinions. We have such a low opinion of ourselves. We set such an incredibly high bar of expectation that there is no way, no chance, zero chance we could ever live up to this bar of expectation. You're one of these people that you're watching television and, and some infomercial comes on about a starving child in Africa and you go, oh, I can't save them all. Oh, I'm such an awful person. 
I would eat Cheerios, but they didn't have Cheerios. I'm just going to go eat dirt because they got lots of dirt. And so in this moment, you begin to kind of convict yourself. Your heart begins to condemn you based upon something that you actually can't affect, something you actually can't change. And in this, we find ourselves illegitimately convicting ourselves of things we are not guilty of. Do you see this? Other people's opinions are anticipation of being able to to perform at such a high bar and a level of expectation that our God does not expect of us. But man, we recognize there are moments when our heart for sure convicts us of sin. We're engaged in lust, we're engaged in envy, we're engaged in apathy. We just don't care and we don't care that we don't care. And in these moments, the condemnation of your heart is spoken of as conviction, not condemnation. So it's not the Holy Spirit moving in your life and communicating to you that you are worthless and vile and empty, but communicating to you that there has been a separation of relationship between you and God. And this separation of relationship between you and God needs to be restored and can be restored on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus, which saved you in the past and saves you now. Amen? So we recognize We need to not be convicted by these illegitimate motives of our heart, but we need to allow ourselves to be led by the Spirit who occasionally speaks to us and say, Matt, you've messed up. Matt, you've sinned. It doesn't call me to lay down on the ground and, and, and be base and dejected, but calls me to stand, rise, and walk in the freedom of forgiveness and righteousness that is mine through the shed blood of Jesus. So this is what he's calling us to. But in the midst of this, whether it's illegitimate or legitimate conviction, condemnation of our hearts, there are a couple of different ways we come up out of this. The most frequent way that I see people try and come up out of sin, and the most frequent way I see people try and come up out of illegitimate condemnation is through self-imposed righteousness. Do you know what I'm talking about? This is this kind of deal. And so we're engaged in some type of sin. We're engaged in some type of inward thought that we think that we're not worthy. We think that we're not valuable. And so we begin to kind of construct this, uh, this, this shabbily put together uh, being to kind of prop us up and help us appear to be, help us in fact to be righteous. And what this looks like is just kind of uh, rules-based legalism. And so we go in and we say, oh, I just, you know, I just need to cut this out of my life. And so I just need to cut Netflix out of my life. I just need to cut uh, this out of my life. I just need to start doing this more. I just need to wake up an hour earlier. I just need to go to bed an hour uh, earlier. I need to, to do these things. I need to change certain things in my life. And when I have changed these things, when I have walked in line of doing this for two to three weeks, then I can go to God and say, okay, now that my heart is clear before you, let's, let's walk again. Let's have this relationship again. So I just need to take a break from church. I just need to get me in a healthy place. And then once I'm in a healthy place again, God, then you can come in. And then you can move in my heart. And then I'll allow myself to be used by you. I mean, this is a lie straight from the pit of hell. There is therefore no condemnation for us, according to Paul in Romans 8 and verse 1. There is no condemnation for you. Equally, there is no ability in yourself to build righteousness from the flesh. When we seek to uh, take this approach, when we seek to kind of put our life back together and put these pieces together, and this is our first direction, and this is the first step we take, what are we doing? We're not building on the righteousness that's ours in Jesus. We're building on the righteousness that is assumed by everybody looking to us and saying, well, Grant's not such a mess up anymore. Well, Siri, she's finally quit smoking meth on the weekends. That's great. Great job, Siri. 
Honestly, I've never seen her smoke meth on the weekends. And so we recognize that it's not this ability for us to construct this thing and, and, and to build it up. So what is it? How then do we come out from underneath illegitimate and legitimate condemnation in our hearts? Well, John gives us the answer to this. But it's surprising. He says God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. Well, this isn't comforting for many of us, is it? On the one hand, it is. And on the other hand, you're like, wait, he knows like everything, everything? Or like a little bit of everything? No, like, I mean, the word, it means everything in total, in total. On the one hand, it's so incredibly comforting. This condemnation we receive in our heart, this, this inward manifestation where we either feel guilty based on somebody's opinion of us or we feel guilty because we've sinned. And we come in and God says, I am greater than your heart. The inward testimony of our heart that makes us feel far from God, we recognize our God is greater. He is able to restore this right relationship with him. He is able to remove this sense of waywardness. He's able to remove this sense of guilt from us because our God is greater. And we have this tendency of saying, our God is greater and he can remove the sin that other people see in my life and he can remove those things that, you know, push come to shove late at night. I'll overshare chronically, sorry about that. But, but what about those things inwardly in my heart that, whoo, man, I don't want those things to see the light of the day and I don't even wanna think them in my mind or say them out of my mouth. What we hear is this, our God is greater, he knows everything. The degree to which our God is greater than your heart is so incredibly amazing. What makes him so great is that he knows everything about you. I want you to understand this. Our heart can be so inwardly wicked and deceptive. And it can lead us to believe things that are not true. But it can also conceal things from us that are true. Some of us, we have this sin cycle. Man, we, we look at things we shouldn't look at. We say things we shouldn't say, the way we spend our time, the way we spend our money, the characterization of others from us, whatever your own personal sin is, whatever it is in your life, we recognize that God sees not only that sin, but he sees the sin deep at the inward part of your heart that you're not even fully aware of, from which all of these other things materialize, from which all of these other things come. He sees these things. The inward motivation of your heart that you're so terrified about and you don't want to plumb the depths of it. Our God sees these things and even those things, he is greater than. So you see, we don't walk up out of waywardness. We don't walk up out of this illegitimate understanding. We don't walk up out of condemnation from us building together this ramshackle righteousness. We walk up out of brokenness. We walk up out of this with brokenness and humility. Falling down before our God, being on our faces before him and crying out, your righteousness, your righteousness, your righteousness. That's the way. By loving him, receiving his forgiveness, and being willing to be broken and humble. God calls us to walk up out of this. Now look what he goes on. Verse 21, he says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. In essence, the argument that John is making here is on the basis that God is so much greater than your heart, on the basis that he knows everything, when we come to him and confess our sins before him, there is no condemnation for the Christian. 
There is no condemnation for the Christian. In essence, because our hearts don't condemn us, we are able to have confidence before God. And then you ask that question, from whence does our confidence flow? Where in the world does our confidence come from? The author of Hebrews wrote it this way in Hebrews 10, 19. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to do what? To enter the holy place by what? By the blood of Jesus. Our confidence always comes from the blood of Jesus. And so we enter into his presence through the blood of Jesus. And because we have this, he goes on and he has this audacious claim. He says, whatever we ask, we receive from him. Whatever we ask, we receive from him. Now, he offers this prescription in 1 John 5, 14. He says, whatever we ask with him in accordance with his will. And so those of you who are praying for a Corvette to be in the parking lot when you walk out of here, that's only true for one of us. Right? The one who drove here in a Corvette. So we recognize that, that God extends to us this amazing thing. He says, whatever you ask in accordance with my will, when you walk in my commandments, you can have this. Whatever you ask of him. And it stems from the confidence we have in him, which is not something we've done. Our confidence stems from the shed blood of Jesus. And on the basis of our confidence, we're able to have right relationship with God. He goes on, he says, because we keep his commandments, we do what pleases him. And so the question then becomes, verse 23, what in the world are his commandments? Well, look what he says. Commanded two things, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another. Well, this is falling right back in line with verse 18 of chapter 3. This idea that we don't just love and talk. We don't just love and and this, this, this idea of, well, you know, maybe we can make some effective change. But we love indeed and in truth. And even that, we do that on the basis of love received. We do that on the basis of love received. Back in verse 16 of chapter 3, he says, by this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. In essence, we didn't really know or understand love. We knew how to be nice to people. We knew how to be gracious to people. But love, to the depths to which God shows us, we didn't really understand. We had no box for it, no way to metric it. And we are integrated into love. We understand love by this. He laid down his life for you. It's transformative. It's completely life-changing. That God would surrender himself, lay down his life for you, calls us to walk in faithfulness. We are motivated not on the basis of the potential of receiving love, but we are motivated on the basis of love already received. He has loved us. He has loved us from the beginning. And in the midst of having received his love, he calls on us to demonstrate faithfulness before him, believing in his son, and loving those around us. I can tell you that for many of you, you're, this, this thought of kind of limiting the sphere of influence, right? So if I don't hang out with any people, I don't know many people, I don't have to love very many people. That's sharp. You're twisted. That's sharp, but wrong, ultimately. And so this is the idea. That a heart fully submitted to God, as you talked about last week, sees others, sees their need, and moves to meet the need. God gives to us, he supplies to us, so that we might be impactful on those we encounter. This is not a call to limit those you encounter, as if that makes you less culpable, less responsible, less guilty for being a lazy, gluttonous Christian. Do you understand what I'm saying? The call of the Christian 
is the outward expanse of the gospel. We place no limitation upon that. The call of the Christian is the outward expanse of the gospel. We place no limitation upon that. So you're at Walmart. As most of your trips to Walmart go, you got 15 lines, you got two of them open, the self-checkout's broken, right? This is just how it works. You got that person up there that's got no sticker on their deal. They assume the price is much lower than it really is. They're haggling with the checker as if they have some type of omniscience to know every price anywhere in the store and the barcode number. Well, you need a manager up front. You're going to be there at least 45 minutes to an hour. If you have a good cell phone signal, now would be the time to binge watch your TV show. But because you're not a selfish glutton seeking to entertain self, you look around. You see a mom in front of you struggling to maintain her kids. They're three aisles over. You begin to talk to her. You begin to engage her as a person in need of redemption. You begin to encourage her with the love of Christ that you have received. You go to the DMV. Oh, And then you go home again, you cry, and you go back to the DMV, and you find out it has not much changed. Instead of sitting there, inwardly stewing and and plotting anarchy and the overflow of bureaucratic nonsense, and wondering why you didn't drive to Sulphur Springs, you, you begin to think through, man, who in this room do I have a divine appointment to engage with? Who in this room can I show the love of Jesus to? It's transformative. That's how we love one another. Not by seeking to limit the spirit of influence, but by seeking to engage others in conversation so they can feel, experience, and be told of the great love of our God. Amen? Now I want to talk about verse 24 for a second. Verse 24 really gets into this idea of what it is to abide in God, what it is to rest in the finished work of Jesus. He says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. When our hearts are his, we inherently walk in his commandments because our hearts are fully surrendered to the Holy Spirit. And this is what he's talking about. We rest in God. We don't wrestle to make sure that we do. We rest in the finished work of Jesus, and we recognize the finished work of Jesus, his love received, has completely transformed our actions over the course of our life. And we're walking in the assurance of that, and we're walking in the trust of that, and we are resting in his presence and in his embrace. We abide in God and God in us. But look at the last line of this. He says, and by this we know that he abides in us. And the temptation for most of us over the course of our lives is to say, how do you know you're a Christian? You say, well, I got baptized. How do you know that you're a Christian? I always went to church. How do you know that you're a Christian? My granny, she always prayed for me. How do you know that you're a Christian? I prayed the sinner's prayer so many years ago. How do you know you're a Christian? And we begin to fill it with all these various things that we have done, things we have said, things people have said about us. And we recognize that John has given us the indication that at some point in the future, things are going are to go south for us, and we need to look back at the swath of our lives and the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit moving in us and producing work in us. But the most amazing way the Christian receives assurance is right here. The way that we know he abides in us is by the Spirit whom he has given us. Let me just say a word about that. In terms of the Spirit and our reliance upon Him, 
conservative evangelicals are terrible. We are the worst, to quote my five-year-old. We are the worst. Most of us in this room do not live lives continually filled by the Spirit and directed by the Spirit. And most of us don't care one lick whether or not we hear from the Spirit. This is who we are. When most of us engage in conversation, we think of, of really spirit-filled worship gatherings. We think of Pentecostals, like people running laps around our pews, lots of tambourine, right? Some free dancing. And we think of, of just really extravagant manifestations of the Spirit. And this is what most of us think about. And this is why most of us think about those things, and we want nothing to do with it. Because we lump everything with the Spirit into just we kind of characterize them all. And I, I apologize, and I'm, I'm not saying this is true. I'm saying this is what you do, not me. And so we characterize them all as crazy wackadoos, right? A bunch of spirit-filled lunatics running around and going blah, 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 whatever. But we suppress the spirit. We want nice, tidy, neat, Western manifestations of Christianity we want like the Pythagorean theorem of Christianity. A squared plus B squared equals oh, C squared. Yes. Like, this is what we want. A life that is directed by the Spirit is scary in some sense. Because we don't come to God and say, God, this is what I'm willing to do. Like multiple choice. You can pick this. I can be rich. I can be wealthy. I can be awesome. I can be famous. I can be a missionary. Right? I give you four good things to choose from, and you chose the fifth one. Come on now, what's wrong with you? But we simply don't hear from the Spirit. Many of us have lost the ability to listen. We've lost the desire to listen. Our prayer lives look like a grocery list, right? Now we know, most of us, better than to come into prayer and immediately start asking for stuff. So we grease the rails first. God, you're so amazing and awesome and wonderful and spectacular and trending on Twitter, really? Oh, check this out. I get a notification on Facebook. Oh, wait, hold on. I was praying. And, um, oh, God, you're just so um, awesome. And uh, synonyms for awesome. Synonyms for awesome. And mighty and church word. Omniscient, powerful, omnipotent. Everlasting, yes. So we kind of move through these things. We think of this as kind of greasing the rails, that once we do these things, God's like, oh, oh, you would say those things about me? Oh, I'm blushing in heaven right now. What do you want, my dear one? What do you want? I want a new car. Oh, you didn't grease the rails that well, I'm just saying. That was like 30 seconds of five synonyms over and over and over again, interspersed by God, Father, and amen, right? It's laughable, but this is exactly what our prayer lives look like. For too many of us, we don't hear from God. We go into prayer to communicate something up to God, not to hear from Him. When you talk to someone, typically the person with the most information, the wisest person, the person who brings the most to bear and change potentially on the situation is the one who needs to be sharing. 
Man, if I've got a major heart defect and I go in and I meet with a heart surgeon, I'm not there to build that brother up. I'm there to hear from him, right? I'm here, there to hear from him or from her and say, like, my heart is jacked. I don't even know. Like, I've got a, a, some stuff in there, and can you fix it? He says, I'm going to fix it, and this is how I'm going to fix it. Begins to move through all the intricacies of my heart that I know not of. Prayer, the majority of our prayer needs to be quiet, waiting, and needy. There's no neediness to most of our prayer. There's no waiting to most of our prayer. And the reason, a significant reason, that so many of us struggle with assurance is all we've got is looking back at our life. And we look back at our life, and our temptation is to look at all those valleys where we made a mistake, all those places where we engaged in sin. The most powerful weapon in the arsenal of assurance for the Christian's heart is the testimony of the Spirit. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the gift of your Spirit. Father, I pray this morning for those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus. They have received your Spirit. God, they don't remember the last time they heard from your spirit that you would move in their hearts that they would be convinced of the importance of hearing from your spirit God that they would not be quick to talk in prayer but they would be slow to speak quick to listen that the testimony of your spirit on the basis of the finished work of Jesus, we'll be providing for them assurance. And Father God, this morning we pray for those who have yet to surrender themselves to Jesus. Father, they have yet to surrender themselves to your spirits. So they've got no assurance. They may be good and moral and wonderful people. They stand convicted. They stand condemned. The testimony of their heart, in essence, is true. So God, I pray for the conviction of your spirit that you would awaken their eyes to the truth, to your reality, and to the forgiveness they're able to enjoy in Jesus, and to the life that they're able to live in the power of the spirit, the spirit who has sealed them, and the spirit who communicates, could communicate to them assurance, forgiveness. So God, I pray that you would continue to move in our midst, move in our hearts in this time as we transition to application. Your spirit would continue to fall in this place, continue to move us. And that we as a people, in one accord, would move out living lives, submitted, needy, waiting for the movement of your spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.